Hello and welcome to episode 169 of the Live to Walk Again podcast. My name is Jeremy Dixon, your host as always, and with me today through the magic of Zoom is Ricardo Benavides. Ricardo, welcome to the Hey Jeremy, how are you doing buddy? Good, good. So we had to do this, uh, we had a little COVID scare. You don't have COVID, but you've been around people that have it. So uh, you're, you're, uh, we had to do this remotely. Brandon yes. is uh, Brandon's playing Mr. Mom this week. I, I don't know if that's really a, a good reference anymore, but um, you know, his kids are probably swinging from the chandelier playing video games and eating chicken nuggets while his wife uh, is out of town on a work trip. So um, he wasn't able to make it again. Oh, but uh, yeah, you know, hey, we're gonna we're gonna make do. We got got a great guest. We got uh, you know, we got a great co-host. So we're going to make the best of it. Um, As you always do, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <I> try. <laughs> you I do try. with every situation you do. I try, so. I try. Uh, yeah, if you know, if everybody could like, rate, review, share, listen to this podcast, we would greatly appreciate it. It helps us with the algorithms. I think sharing is probably the most important thing you could do, though. So if you could send this to a couple people or tell people about it, we would so much appreciate that. Because uh, after all, right, Jeremy? After to find all, a cure for paralysis. And what else? Sharing is? Sharing is caring. You got it. That's right. There we go. You got it. Uh, yeah. So, you know, how's your how's your week been, Ricardo? It's been, I know everybody's been pretty, uh, it's been pretty hectic. And then. You got exposed to COVID. Now you're uh, just sitting there waiting. Yes. I'm just sitting here waiting. I, I went and checked to, you know, we have a wedding coming up this weekend up here on Orcas Island. <clears throat> and uh, beautiful spot. for those, yeah, for those that aren't familiar with the Northwest, you have to reserve your ferry spot like six months in advance during the summer months to get up on that island. Oh, so, I didn't know that. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So we've been uh, monitoring uh, the conditions uh, with some COVID tests, and hopefully I don't come down with anything. So yeah. I have a little bit of a tickle in my throat. I don't know if you guys can hear it, but uh, I'm hoping it's nothing. Yeah, no doubt, man. No doubt. Would this be your first time getting it? Have you had it before or no? I haven't had it before. Yeah, no. Man, that's yeah. Yeah, not... It's definitely, you know, I got it right after I got out of the hospital. It wasn't that bad, but I mean, I would rather not roll the dice on it again if yeah. given the opportunity. So, uh, but yeah, man, well, you know, Ricardo, this week we um, have a great guy on the podcast from over in the UK again. Uh, his name is Gary Dawson and Gary is the... Uh, He's a blogger, uh, you know, spinal cord injury survivor, which most of our guests are. Uh, he's an adaptive athlete, and he is the network manager for the North for the SIA, which is called the Spinal Injuries Association in the UK, which does a lot of great work uh, helping people that are dealing with spinal cord injuries, uh, you know, get the information they need, you know, help with. I think they help with housing, they help with all kinds of different things, helping getting them caregivers, things like that. Um, so that's very cool as well. Um, and yeah, just a, a really, really, uh, you, you could just kind of hear like his, uh, I don't know, like his energy and his yeah, his enthusiasm uh, for it. Enthusiasm, yes. there you go. Yeah. yeah, you could hear it in his voice um, on this interview. So uh, yeah, like what, I mean, I, I was I was blown away by him. Like he he had me you know have me uh yeah Men mesmerized it sounded yeah, like yeah exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. i'm i'm blanking on words today sorry man i'm a little <laughs> tired it's been hot here it's, it's tough to sleep at night so yeah uh, but yeah we you know we we were able to to link up with gary talk for about 45 minutes he told us a, a bunch of good information um regarding the SIA specifically. His story is a crazy one. Another motorcycle accident. We've had quite a few of those on. Uh, and this will be our second one in a row that a uh, spinal cord injury that was caused by a motorcycle accident. One was a dirt bike. One was a just a motorcycle, like a street bike or whatever. So, Yeah, you know, when he, when he told that story, um, I had a flashback in 1981. I was rear-ended 
on I-5 on my motorcycle. And uh, it was in stop-and-go traffic and uh, scared the crap out of me. Um, luckily, I didn't get hurt. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're in between cars and you hear tires squealing behind you, it's <laughs> it re reevaluates how you're going to commute in traffic. <laughs> so, yeah, no yeah. kidding. That can't that can't be a good feeling. I'm sure. No, no, it totaled the bike. So, wow. Uh, yeah. Well, remember uh, Uncle Ray? Uh, yeah. In a parking lot. Yeah. He got hit in a parking lot. And like the I think the the motorcycle came over he like went over and the motorcycle came down on his leg and almost like had to have his ankle amputated i think or yeah. something it was like his ankle got really really destroyed um and luckily he was able you know didn't suffer any further further injuries but yeah you know like i think uh, he yeah. might have hit his head though did he yeah <laughs> you know oh, i don't man. think he's ever been the same since <laughs> well that's, that, that that could be that could be debated i guess um yeah yeah but you know motorcycles are so damn dangerous but people love them man i, I think they're a lot of fun but yeah it's just god you got to be careful you know um but yeah i mean uh gary you know he i think he uh he skidded basically like lost control of his motorcycle and slid into like slid off of the motorcycle, went, went away, And then the motorcycle came through and hit him and pinned him up against a car. And uh, apparently like the exhaust pipe hit him square in the back and, you know, broke his, broke his back. Um, and I forget what level he's at. I know he's a paraplegic. Uh, I think it might've been T7, uh, which is just like, what, I mean, yeah, like that, like that wasn't bad. I mean, you probably hit that car thinking like, okay, I'm going to be all right. And then two seconds later gets hit by his motorcycle. Like, yeah. Yeah. Crazy. And he was young too, 19, you right. know, young, young, young kid, just like you, you know? Mm -hmm. so. And yeah, he's been injured for quite a while too. So we talked a little bit about that and, um, you know, we can talk about some depression stuff, talk about, uh, about, um, drugs like prescription painkillers things like that uh yeah so um yeah it's, i thought it was a really good interview and uh you want to get to that and we'll talk a yeah little I, more on the other side yeah I, yeah i think so it's a it's a great interview uh you will not be disappointed absolutely absolutely all right well uh without further ado here is gary dawson and we will talk to you guys in a few minutes This week on the Live to Walk Again podcast, we are excited to get to visit with Gary Dawson, who is a blogger, a spinal cord injury survivor, an adaptive athlete, and he works with the Spinal Injuries Association and is the support network manager for the north of England. Uh, Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me, man. No, thank you for having me. I'm uh, really pleased to be here. Yeah, this is this is awesome. I'm glad uh, glad we were finally able to catch up, and uh, you know I've been following you for a little while now, and, and yeah, you always have such a positive kind of uh, you know mindset. It seems like, and, and really uh, you know put out some positive things uh, for the for the you know spinal cord injury community. But uh, you know, for anybody that doesn't already know your story, uh, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how you su you suffered your spinal cord injury. Sure, no problem. So back in 2003, uh, when I was 19, just living my life, I was an electrician. I was sort of, you know, um, going to the gym every day, just being a sort of typical lad. Um, I was involved in a freak motorcycle accident. It was nobody's fault, just slowing down to a set of traffic lights and I lost control of the bike. I went ahead of the bike, hit a car and my own bike followed me down the road and uh, made contact with me and crushed me into the car. Unfortunately, the way that the bike hit me, the exhaust uh, hit me square in the middle of the back and um, gave me an instant spinal cord injury. Um, and that was it. From that moment on, in that blink of an eye, my entire existence on this planet was uh, was, uh, was was changed forever. Wow. Wow. So, so this is 2003. How old are you at this point? I was 19, 19 at the time. I'm 39 now. 19 wow 20 years um yeah you know uh 
so were you were were they able to get you like medical attention right away like how um you know what hospital did you go to and you know then kind of on to rehab like how long did you spend in the hospital before you were able to go start rehabbing so back when i was injured um obviously in the in the uk we have the nhs and the nhs is um the actual hospital where the NHS was founded is a place called Trafford General Hospital, which is uh, in Manchester, so in the sort of the northwest of uh, of England. And I had my accident a mile away from this uh, this hospital, so I was very very fortunate. So within minutes, really, of my uh, my accident, there was an ambulance picking me up, took me straight to hospital. I was admitted into uh, into A and E. Uh, of course, strapped to a spinal board, the um, the fact obviously I was unable to move my legs, um, unable to feel anything. They knew that there was some uh, some instant paralysis there, but obviously the long term prognosis was wouldn't be able to be determined. Um, so yeah, I was I was in this very small what we call district general hospital um, for three days, um, and they didn't really know what to do with me. It's um, they're not a specialist hospital, so they had me on. Kind of just a it was a it was a geriatric ward, so it was like a lot of older patients, and I don't really remember much about being there. There was a lot of drugs pumped into me, um, but I do remember the look on my family's faces that kind of told me that this is serious. But all the morphine they were pumping into me, I just kept giggling, and you know, I was sort of having a bit of a bit of banter, a bit of a laugh with it. Uh, but then a couple of days after being in that hospital, I was transferred over to a place called Salford Royal, which was formerly Hope Hospital. Now, in the UK, we have what's called a major trauma network now. So we have massive hospitals, which now if you were injured, you go straight there. Whereas back when I was injured, it was a little bit different. So it took me a few days to get in there. And I was on a spinal ward where um, for me to have a fixation operations, for them to stabilize my spine and put the metal work in, was quite a long wait. It's probably like a four-week wait back uh, 20 years ago when I had my injury. So I went actually off to a private hospital um, where unfortunately I got incredibly unwell and there was a little bit of mismanagement of my condition where the I just I was just vomiting I wasn't passing any urine and I just turning yellow I'd gone some kidney failure um, so I ended up being rushed back to the major trauma center where they uh, uh, subsequently worked very very tirelessly to keep me alive and eventually they figured out that I had what's called a pulmonary embolism so I had a huge blood clot between between my heart and my lungs, which at the time, I think I was the third person that week who had sort of developed one. And unfortunately, everyone else had died. And I was, for some reason, able to survive this. And so after 10 hours of resuscitation, my family being sent in to say, you'd be dead in 15 minutes, go say goodbye. Um, they thinned my blood that much that I actually bled from my eyes and my ears. Apologies for anyone who's eating whilst they're listening to this. Um, but... Uh, you know, to be able to survive that and not only survive that, but I was in a coma um, throughout most of this as well, where they actually warned my family or prepared my family, said there's a sort of 95% chance that he's now going to be brain dead. So, you know, sort of prepare yourself for the worst. If he actually comes out of his coma, there's not going to be, Gary's not going to be there anymore kind of thing. And, you know, after seven to 10 days in the coma, I cannot quite remember, but uh, they woke me up and, I remember my mum being there. She told me that I'd been very poorly. Um, but I woke up into, I suppose, this whole new whole new world. I'd lost all muscle mass in my upper limbs through muscle atrophy. I'd had a tracheostomy. So I, uh, if you see my tracheo scar, I've got a really neat tracheo scar. So <laughs> most people who see my tracheo scar are quite jealous that they've got a tracheo scar because it's so neat. Uh, but obviously, if you wake up and you've, you've, you've been, you're tracheid, you can't speak. Yeah. Um, and again, at the time, I'd lost my upper limb function, not through my spinal injury, but through my um, sort of my time in a in a coma. And uh, yeah, I remember waking up just being absolutely terrified. And the thoughts that go through my went through my head that were very negative, very uh, I can't do this. It was everything I could think of was impossible. It was just um, there was no positivity. There was no opportunities. It was just how can anybody live like this? Um, eventually, so I was in intensive care for about a month, and then I was on like a normal ward for a couple of weeks before I went to what we have in the UK as spinal units. So we have dedicated specialist centres, which I'm pretty sure you've got in America as well, of specialist centres for rehabilitation for people with spinal cord injuries. Yeah. And 
once I got there, so it'd been about eight weeks be between my injury and actually getting to the spinal unit, obviously all that time in intensive care. And I'd never seen another person in a wheelchair sort of after my injury. It was all healthcare professionals and family and friends and everyone telling me everything's going to be fine and you'll be all right and, and all these other things. And then I just couldn't see, I just couldn't see how my world is going to adapt to to these new circumstances. All I could focus on was bladder, bowels, sexual function, no feeling, can't move my legs, need to walk, need to run, need to get on my bike. But then I went to a spinal unit and saw another person in a wheelchair. And it was like, it was amazing because they weren't angry and frustrated and pissed off. They were, they were laughing and, and joking with other people. And, and as much as we were all dealing with our own struggles and our own, our own circumstances, we had this collective um, union that we were all in the same boat. And I really embraced that. And I really enjoyed that environment. You know, even though I was now paralyzed, I was, um, I was, I was you know, laughing and joking again, even though I was still often crying myself to sleep, thinking of the negative side of it. I was still getting, and I, I am paraplegic, so I'm paralyzed from the chest down. Um, a T6 complete. My upper limbs are not affected by my spinal cord injury. However, I have no feeling, no sensation, no control of bodily function, sexual dysfunction. So below my injury, and for me getting up into a wheelchair, then I, I just engaged with it really quickly, and so I was actually only in rehab for seven weeks. Which was really really fast um, for sort of back in the uh, back in the day. There was a lot of people in there for six to twelve months and even longer. And I was just very much. I need to go home. I need to get back to my family. I need to get back to my friends. I need to start living my life again. And so I kind of talked to my consultant, talked to um, the psychologist, and and they were like, "Yeah, I'm ready to go home. Send me home." And it was probably the biggest mistake I ever made because when I was discharged from hospital. As good as um, the government is here for providing you know, um, accommodation and benefits and um, and everything we need, all the prescriptions that we need, it takes time to get it in place. So I went back to my mum's house, which was completely inaccessible. It was, um, you know, I had a portable commode that uh, I'd gone from managing my own bowels in the bathroom with a shower chair to having to have my mum empty, you know, urine bottle and it, for me that was really hard at 19 um, and I did this for about a month and just really struggled till the, till the government the council put me into it's called an independent living facility which was um, this amazing house that was designed for people in my situation to see if you could live independently I loved it absolutely loved it because all of a sudden these skills that I had spent months uh, like the weeks sort of trying to uh, to master started to make sense so you know, transferring onto a bed transferring onto a shower chair, being able to dress, being able to come and go as I please. But the next thing I wasn't prepared for was the isolation of being outside of the support bubble. You know, we, when I was in the spinal unit, I had 45 other people with spinal cord injuries to talk to and to laugh to and to, and to get support from and to support myself. And then I went back into my existing life, but, not my existing life had not changed. Everything was the same. The only thing that had changed was me and my circumstances. But my friends, my families, their lives had gone back to normal. They'd gone back to work. You know, my friends had gone back to university. And I was just found myself sat there every day, disabled, crippled, um, you know, just not leaving the house, scared of having bowel accidents, scared of um you know, wetting myself, afraid of what, uh, if I leave the house, who's going to make fun of me and laugh at me, who's going to, you know, who's going to sort of tip me out my wheelchair kind of thing. And I really slipped into depression quite badly. And I dealt with it in a way of sort of um, big smile on my face, dead confident. All my friends and family thought it was amazing. Like I got them through it, but I wasn't eating. I wasn't drinking. I turned to drink, drugs, self-harming. I battered my legs so much that I actually ruptured all the veins in my legs. Um, and every time something happened and I got readmitted into hospital with like, sort of, they thought I had DVTs and I was like, oh, I fell, I fell getting in the bath and didn't actually tell anybody because, you know, back in the early 2000s, I was 19. I was a man. I was strong. I'm not weak. And, you know, crying's for, for, for weakness and, and I'm not letting this beat me. And I just didn't speak to anybody, um, which was such a toxic thing to do to myself. But I couldn't see any way out of it 
And unfortunately, I did get to the point where I did attempt to take my own life several times through overdoses. But I always remember, even in whatever drunken stupor I was in and sort of throwing down all my medication, I always remember the effort that the healthcare professionals put into saving me, my, the, what my family's already been through. And it always made me kind of vomit it up and regret it and wake up the next day and be in a horrible state, ringing my GP, my as our general practitioner, um, I was like, oh, I've lost all my meds. They fell out my bag. So they just send you more. No one ever questioned it. No one ever looked at the circumstances and went, I dropped down to about six and a half stone, which was probably what, 110 pounds. I think it is about that. I could be rough. I was just skin and bone. Um, but everyone's like, oh, well, he's, he's paralyzed. He's not moving. Of course, he's going to lose weight. And it was just, I just hid it for years. And my family actually only found out about this about two years ago when it got published in the local paper, when I did this um, thought this uh, this story for, um, for the Spinal Injuries Association, who I work for. But so the, the big the big changes for me was, you know, once I kind of got past that depression, I learned to drive, I got involved with disability sports, everything changed for me then. I just, I just excelled and accelerated through um, living my life and I found purpose again and I found... I found my place within the world again, which I you know for so many years I felt I'd lost. Um, you know, and that's yeah, that, since... it sounds like uh, being like in involved with the community was really like beneficial for you. And then as soon as you were isolated, it was uh, it just kind of spiraled out of control. Um, you know, did so when they put you in the independent living house, there's nobody is this that's not like a thing where there's like multiple people in wheelchairs living there, it's just you on your own. So no, I was, I was there on my own. And interestingly, it was actually on a street where every person in on that street um, had a disability of various kinds. There was lots of people who were born with disabilities and there were people who were amputees. Um, but I was, we, we, there was no social aspect to it. It was just, and the problem is the um, the street was just in this really, really rough area. So even though, you know, your neighbor had a disability. You never seen them because they probably didn't venture out their houses either. So it was, it was all kind of, I suppose, living our own little nightmares and our own little bubbles. Um, and no one actually knew what was going on. And again, I was so, so insecure about, you know, being a wheelchair user or, um, you know, having a disability, what people would think uh, for so long. Because there was no, there was no good representation of two thousand and three. Obviously, you were injured before me, but there's no, there was no. When you lay in bed, there's no YouTube, there's no, there's no Zooms, there's no Instagram, there's no TikTok where you can go. Well, look what people are doing. It was just uh, someone downloads and prints out some some paper off the internet and says, "Read this." It's like a manual. I'm like. Yeah, don't read nineteen. <laughs> right, and I I always think that too. You know, like. I, I, it's terrible for anybody to suffer spinal cord injury at any point in time but at least today like some of the newly injured people they have that those those resources to, to turn to and and you know watch somebody doing a transfer and and maybe how they do it a little different than they were taught in the hospital or whatnot so um yeah no that remember, that's good good point good point i remember the greatest impactful moments of my early rehabilitations when when in our spinal units you've got everyone from people who can walk and so your cardiac syndromes very incomplete injuries all the way up to c1 c2 uh complete vented chin operated chairs and i remember being in the spinal unit and you know, we all had to eat in the communal area and i was talking to some of the lads who were in there with who were really high level injuries and there were people feeding them because they'd lost all upper limb function and I remember thinking to myself, I've got my arms, I've got my hands, how dare I? And I felt such like imposter syndrome. I felt, how dare I complain? I mean, look what these people are adapting to. And we're all still having that banter, all still, you know, supporting each other. And I just remember that being quite a poignant moment in my early years, thinking it could be so much worse. And then for those people, they were like, well, there's there's people in boxes underground that uh, would kill for, you know, to be in any of our situations. So... Yeah, it was all relative um, in hindsight when I look back. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's how I always got through was like just thinking, you know, I, 
you know, being a C4 quadriplegic, I could easily be on a ventilator, you know, but yeah, got lucky and, and yeah, didn't end up having to deal with that. So, I mean, it's all, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's all kind of how you look at it, I think. And, um, yeah, the, the attitude you, you kind of put forward is, is always important, but like you mentioned too, with the, you know, with your, um, kind of depression that I think most of us get after, you know, after this thing, this injury kind of sets in and, and the reality of it hits you. Um, but like you mentioned, you, you know, you were able to put on a smile and, and pretend there was nothing wrong and your you know, your family had no idea. So it's, you know, it runs deep, man. And, and yeah, that's, uh, that's good that you were able to get, get through that. Cause yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a slippery slope for sure. Like that can't, can't be, can't be fun um, dealing with it on that level. So, um, you know, I, I wanted to like switching gears a little bit, you know, you, you kind of mentioned that, that after you were, you know, finally able to, you know, you got through kind of the, the, the drug abuse and the, um, you know, like trying to, trying to kill, you know, kill yourself a couple of times. Um, and then you were able to kind of get into uh, uh, the adaptive, uh, mm-hmm. sports and things like that. Um, what was, uh, you know, how did you get into that stuff? Like what, what, uh, who brought that to you? Had you already, um, heard about it just being in the hospital and things like that over the years or, um, yeah, talk about getting in, involved in, uh, athletics. So, so I'm the, I'm the, I'm the biggest advocate for any form of sports. I think it's the greatest form of rehabilitation there is. And I've always been a, an athletic person. I was a gymnast from the age of five to 16. And I got into sort of street skating and I was in the gym every day when I was uh, working as an electrician. And um, for me, I mean, my family knew I was quite, I've always been a sporty person, quite a sporty family. It was my granddad, actually, who uh, he plays table tennis. Um and he, the local sports centre where he trained, they had a wheelchair basketball team. And he just sort of came around one day and said, uh, well, why don't I take you down? And I'm like, no, no, I don't want to. No, uh, you know, they're all, they're all friends. And you know, I, don't, I, I won't know what to do. I won't fit in all this sort of stuff. He's like, oh, we'll just go down. We'll, tell, we'll sit at the back. We'll watch. And, you know, we'll we'll just see. Just see. I go, see what you, what you think. And anyway, so we went down and. And as soon as I went in, everyone was like, oh, new person, like straight over. It's like, oh, and everyone introduced themselves and they were all really friendly and, and loving. I sat there for sort of half an hour watching them. And then I kind of started getting a bit, I, I want to try this. So they got me into a chair. And I remember just kind of just smashing into everybody and not having a clue what the rules were. I remember this, just this feeling of all this, this anger and this frustration and this, uh, this stress that had been building up inside me and just it was just alleviating and I was laughing and joking and really enjoying it and then afterwards you know it wasn't just like right the session's over everyone goes home they were all sat around talking and I was talking to them about you know they were telling me about you know their relationships and the um um the the holidays they go on the work that they do and the kids that they've got and and then we went outside and obviously i've got my grandfather sort of driving me to and from and they're all getting in their own cars independently and it's like kind of watch you all kind of see your hand controls and it was just this it was access to this world that for such a long time since since being in a spinal unit i'd never i've not seen it because there was no again no social media giving me uh giving me sort of hints of it it was it was just amazing and I, I never looked back and I just I really really got into it and I and I gone I couldn't go back to return to work as an electrician so I uh I, I found this this new passion in my life which was basketball and I uh, I trained and trained and trained and I then moved on to sort of bigger and stronger clubs and uh got involved with the GB program and I was part of the GB program for several years and never unfortunately never actually got into the squad um which was quite sad, but um, that actually led me into my my working life because when I didn't get selected for London 2012, it was like right, it's time to get a to get a job. But uh, but I absolutely loved absolutely loved sport. It was you know I was getting fit, I was getting strong. Um, it that then obviously helped things like my skin integrity. Um, the fitter and stronger I was helped with sort of bone density, bladder and bowel management. Um, and my mental health was in such a good place. And even though every day I was waking up still paralyzed and I was still having to get dressed, get into my chair, get in you know, and go about my business. But it was like, right, going off to uh, to play basketball today with the guys. And, you know, I was excited about it. And again, found that passion again. 
Oh, that, that's beautiful, man. Um, you know what? And, and I've seen on your Instagram page, um, it looks like you do a lot of hand cycling also. So what are some, uh, have you tried quite a few different adaptive sports or are those kind of the main two basketball and hand cycling? I'm, I'm definitely someone who wants to try everything. You know, I've done, um, I say wheelchair basketball was the first thing. I actually got into hand cycling because of work and they did a hand cycle from London to Paris. So it's sort of like England to France. Um, I've never done it before, but put my hand up straight away. It's like, yeah, let me get involved. And since then I've actually done, this year will be the 10th cycle I've done with the Spinal Injuries Association. So I've been able to sort of do like London to Paris, London to Amsterdam, Budapest to Vienna, uh, across the Carpathian Mountains in Transylvania, the Tuscan Loop in Italy, around Slovenia. It was amazing. Um, but I've also tried skiing. I've done sledge hockey. I've done different types of hand cycling, tennis, uh, table tennis, uh, swimming. Uh, I swam with sharks last year. That was oh, last year, year before, um, which was an interesting one. So, and that was sort of a scuba diving. Uh, yeah, I'll try anything if I uh, if I get the opportunity to. So, what what has been your favorite sport that you've gotten to try so far? Would you say? I think basketball is going to be my my ultimate favorite. It's so fast, it's so complex, it's so technical, um, but it's also you know you you get the basics right. It just flows and it just it's just amazing. And um, and I've played with my team for like seventeen years now, so it's just like playing with family. So um, yeah, I, I love that, but. I, every time I try a new sport, I try and figure out how can I take this up and how can I fit it into my life and uh, or how can I get other people to try it? No, uh, that, I do think a... variety is definitely the spice of life. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm, I'm interested to hear, um, you know, what this, I wanted to talk about the Spinal Injuries Association as well uh, there in the UK. And, you know, how did you, what, I guess, what is it first? And then, you know, maybe you can tell us how you got involved with them and eventually became the, uh, the support network manager for the North. Oh, I'm just pulling my laptop in. So, um, yeah, the Spinal Injuries Association is a national charity uh, that was set up back in 1974. Um, and we support anybody who's affected by spinal cord injury. And I actually didn't really have that much impact from or involvement with them. So when I was in there in the, in the spinal unit, and they weren't, they did their services were very much limited to sort of a magazine and you know um, someone maybe coming in once a month to have a chat with uh, with people. Whereas um, after sort of I went backpacking around Australia and sort of Borneo, Kuala Lumpur uh, with my brother after my accident. And uh, when I came back, the, one of the lads that I was uh, rehabbed with, a chap called Steve Rimmer, who was working for the SIA, uh, asked me to come into the spinal unit and talk about my experience of traveling and, you know, sort of um, tell people what it's like to get on planes or stay in uh, on, on, um, sort of unfamiliar uh, settings, different hotels, different motels, etc. Um, so I became a volunteer for the SIA going into the spinal unit and just sharing my experience with the newly injured people and hopefully giving them a bit of inspiration, a bit of motivation, but also talking to them about my experience after after my injury, you know, with how I struggled when I went home and, you know, just preparing for them for that that isolation and that that you'll feel like you fell off a cliff when you leave here. And after a couple of years of volunteering, I got the uh, the opportunity to apply for a full-time role. So it's, it's a full-time job. Um, and that was to to do it like kind of what I was doing volunteering, but on a bigger scale. So I live in the Northwest of England and the job was to go around uh, acute hospitals and speak to people in sort of within weeks of their diagnosis. So they have their accidents or, or the, their illness and disease. Um, they'll be told that they're paralyzed and then, or whatever their extent of their injury is. And then we would follow up and go in and talk to them about what that means and share our experiences in life and hopefully give them a bit of a, uh, that light at the end of the tunnel um like i said i went two months without seeing anybody um so hopefully just giving them a little bit of um hope i suppose uh, but we're not medical professionals uh, in in the team that i work with him so that kind of grew from there and eventually um i progressed up to being uh, to managing a team of what's called support coordinators so over 10 regions in the uk we have somebody who goes into all uh, hospital settings, so whether that's intensive care, critical care, sort of the step-down wards and the rehab wards, uh, specialist rehabilitation, neuro-rehabilitation, community-based as well. So we either go to people's homes 
um, or we run community groups, which I've actually where I've just come from today. Um, and we basically help people adjust to life after injury. So wherever, so the needs of somebody in, in intensive care who just need to talk to somebody who, who's they're just going to say, I don't know how I'm going to do this. This is terrifying. How will I pay my bills? How will I, how will I still be a husband, a, a wife, whatever it's going to be? How will I still be a son or, a, or, or an electrician and talk to them about, well, what are the possibilities? Or maybe it's in rehabilitation when people are asking me about how do you drive? How do you go on holiday? How do you return to work? What benefits are available for you? What wheelchairs are available? What different products are available? To, to that support when somebody's at home where we're then able to, again, go to their houses or get into one of our community groups and make sure that they're coping, make sure that they are starting to live their lives and they've got things in the diary and they are getting out the house and they're going doing the shopping and, you know, they're not locked away. They're not in the situation that I found myself in and they've got somebody who understands that they can talk to. And that's the support network team that I work in. And we're connected to loads of different other organizations. So we soundpost out to different charities, different legal firms, different finance firms, housing, et cetera. And we connect them all together. But the SIA has, we've got a clinical team. So we have specialist nurses who go out and do training for people in non-specialist settings. So I don't know about you, but my biggest fear is going back into hospital and getting a pressure ulcer or them not being able to manage my bowels or what you know them giving me not, not listening to me when i say i've got autonomic dysreflexia and they kind of go huh yeah. never heard of it and i'm like yeah my ingrowing toenail is about to kill me can you sort it so you know we have things like emergency care plans in place which are written for us like so the services we provide are really really extensive i mean we we have things like the all, all part of parliamentary group where we actually lobby the uh, uk government for change uh, which is actually not only helps people with spinal cord injuries but the wider disabled community as well um, and we've got magazines, we've got leaflets, we've got all sorts of different things. It's an amazing, amazing. Ch- and we're a charity, so we get no government funding at all. Oh, man. Wow, wow. So are the people on your team that kind of go out and, you know, check on folks that have had spinal cord injuries or answer questions, things like that, um, about traveling or about driving or whatever the case may be, um, are, are is everybody, do, do all the folks that work for you then have spinal cord injuries um, that yeah. are out there interacting with the... Um, yeah so in the uk so in the uk the sia is probably the largest employer of people with spinal cord injuries so every person in the support network team has a spinal cord injury so i have one my my counterpart in the south carol um who manages the south has a spinal cord injury our boss who is the um, head of services has a spinal cord injury the director of programs above him has a spinal cord injury all of our coordinators are spinal cord injured. All of our volunteers as well are spinal cord injured as well. And, you know, we've got the full variety, of full spectrum as well. We've got people who are able to walk. We've got people who, um, you know, are sort of C4, 5 complete. Some have care. Some have um, more assistance than others. Um, so we've, we've got a really good representation um, that people, again, if one person is not the right person to speak to, Granted, geographically speaking, not everyone's going to be able to travel to every hospital. But so, for instance, we've got somebody in the Northwest who's a young, sort of relatively fit and active paraplegic. And we've got someone who's, who covers central London, who's a C, sort of C5, C45 complete, um, who has assistance. And, um, you know, he travels around London and, and does the same job as our, our paraplegics. as uh, But he just does it in a, in a way that is adapted to his role. Nice, nice. So that's a question that just popped in my head. Um, so uh, for people that do need caregivers, like higher level injuries um, or, or assistance or whatever, I'm not sure what you guys call them there in the UK, but um, does the government um, provide those for people? Does the SIA provide, you know, uh, caregivers for people? How does that work over, over there? So we call them PAs, personal assistants or care. Um, it depends on your your need. Um, so, for instance, so it is getting harder to get um, what we call continuing healthcare uh, on the government. Um, the the parameters are getting stricter and stricter each year. So, we get people who would normally get twenty four hour care on the government, where they can have two people there twenty four hours a day, and that enables them to live a very full and active life in their home. Whereas a lot of people have been finding it harder to get that level of care and they're getting, say, four visits a day, which could be, you know, someone to go get them dressed in the morning, sort of bowel management, dress, breakfast, go back. But then they're really tied then to when when care is going to come. 
So we have an advocacy team at the SIA who advocate on behalf of people who are applying for more care. So we feel that a person would benefit from a higher level of care. We will fight on their behalf um, to to get the funding, but it is government funding that um, uh, that that funds it all. Unless obviously someone, if someone has um, a, a, obviously a, a legal claim and they're going to get, they have the option then for. Um, for topping up, you know, and getting extra care if they want it. But even if someone has a, a legal claim in the UK, the government has an obligation to provide the right amount of care for that individual. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. No, thanks for that, that info for sure. Um, you know, I did want to um, also kind of changing gears just a little bit um, your YouTube channel. Like I'm, I was uh, I was very impressed with your your YouTube channel and you know kind of all the the videos just showing people how to do different things and uh, I'm always so impressed with yeah you know, I've talked to a few people that are, that have you know very similar kind of uh, YouTube channel set up where they're just it's like hey this is how you do this 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 is how I do it you know maybe you learn differently but this might work for you. Um, I think that's so refreshing to see and, you know, important for people to be able to like see different uh, styles or different techniques mm -hmm. of how to, how to do these things. When did you really kind of start your YouTube channel and, you know, was it difficult for you to kind of put yourself out there, you know, transferring from one, you know, from seat, sitting in your chair to your bed or vice versa and, and kind of the different things that you, uh, you do like tutorials on there. So I started, I've always done sort of when, when supporting people, you know, if, again, if it would benefit someone, someone like, how do we do this? I'll, I'll film myself doing it and send it to them. And I've done that many of them. It was a case during the pandemic, um, you know, UK went into completely into lockdown. And that's when I started my my Instagram channel. That's when I've, I've been talking about doing it for years, thinking, you know, because I do that. I've, I, I'm constantly told that I do that much stuff that I should I should share it with the world. So I just started that. I've been really lazy with my YouTube channel. I've not really done much with it. I've put like the odd video on and I keep, I really should push it and I really should start putting more videos on at least, at least a video a week. So I've got, I film myself all the time. I've got a back catalog, a back catalog of all sorts of different uh, um, of things that I've done. Um, but I, I have no issue with, um, with putting myself out there. I say for the last decade i've been doing training for healthcare professionals and and that includes going to sort of universities and speaking to students and talking about my story and i'm very comfortable about my past and what i've been through uh, and i'm very comfortable with my spinal cord injury as well you know it's is it ideal no of course not you know who wants to be incontinent who wants to have sexual dysfunction nobody but we've got it and we can't change the past, you know, but we can influence the future. So for me, I've been doing these talks for such a long time that I am quite comfortable talking. About it. There are elements of it that freak me out a little bit. One thing I've never really seen is myself from a third person perspective. So I started filming myself doing things like I filmed one the other day. People want to know how I get dressed or how I put my trousers and I take my jeans on and off kind of thing. And you ne I never really realized how skinny my legs have become. Uh, because I just see them from from my perspective, just sat here looking down, and they're they're in my in my jeans, and they're just there. And right. you kind of see them on film, and they're like they're just like these golf club type stick thin, because there's no obviously because of muscle atrophy, and um, my arms now are probably bigger than my legs. And yeah, that was quite a bit of a, a shock to see myself from that perspective. Because I've always struggled a bit with, I suppose, with body dysmorphia. You know, I went from being a a gymnast, which was quite well built, to having a paraplegic's body, you know, we have, we have, you know, anyway, the spinal cord injury, who has a complete injury, you know, your muscles don't hold your body up in the same way. So you can find yourself having a bit of a belly, your legs don't look the same. You, you don't sit the same, um, or your posture's different. I don't even ever put on a suit and you kind of, I like wearing a suit, but you look in the mirror and then don't look as I thought I was going to. Yeah. So that's been, a, that's been an interesting experience. Sort of seeing myself on camera and on film and kind of going, ah, so that's what I look like. Yeah. Yeah. I never, I never really thought about that, but I feel, you know, I really do the same thing as far as, uh, you know, I'm always like very, like I'm 
double checking like in the mirror like looking at think before I go out because I'm you know I, I'm I feel like I'm so much more I think people think I'm like vain because I'm you know trying to check out like you know make sure everything's pulled down properly you know nothing's like riding up on my hip or oh, when your t-shirt rides up at the back nothing worse yeah, and you've got you can't feel it you don't know right yeah it's just uh it's crazy so it's like yeah you have to be a little more uh aware i guess of, of things you know because and then that's the thing it's like who nobody really care nobody's really going to care that your shirt's a little off or whatever and uh but it's in your yeah i think it's maybe because we don't we've lost control of all these other portions of our life that maybe you know well i can control you know how i look when i'm going out or whatever so um yeah i don't know that's uh <laughs> That, that was a good one, man. I, yeah, I, I never really, haven't thought about that in a while, but yeah, I definitely do the same. So, um, you know, I did want to talk about the, I saw a YouTube video uh, with you speaking about the Vine and Rhine SIA cycle challenge uh, from this past year. And, um, you know, to tell us what that is. That just uh, one of the uh, fundraisers that, that the SIA puts on and, and what is it exactly? So that was our ninth. So every year, let's say we do an overseas cycle challenge and we have around between 30 and 50 participants. Now, the majority of people who cycle don't have disabilities. There are a lot of affiliates um, of the SIA or family members of people with spinal cord injuries. But we usually have between sort of two and five people who hand cycle as well. And like every year we do a different cycle. So like I say, London, London to Paris is one that we started with. And many people, many charities in the UK will do a London to Paris one, but we like to do something different every year. So this year was the, uh, the Vine and Rhine was from Strasbourg in France um, down through sort of dipping in and out of Germany to a place called Schaffhausen in, uh, in Switzerland. So it was about 184 miles over three days. And obviously I use a recumbent hand cycle. I don't have any sort of power attachments on that bike. It's uh, it is just whatever powers in my arms. Although twenty years into my injury now, everything's starting to hurt a little bit more. So I'm very definitely looking for more one with the power attachment. But it is just ultimately it's a uh, a, a fundraiser. Um, I think we raised about sixty thousand pounds for the SIA uh, this year, which was uh, which is a tremendous amount of money. Uh, and you know, it's um, and that's why people do get involved. But we'd love to get more more hand cyclists, more um, more people who have had their spinal cord injury and know that's their challenge, that's something that they're aiming for. Because all the hotels along the route are relatively accessible. Um, it's um, the only hard thing is this one. We have to, you have to get yourself to the start line and sort of get yourself home. And I don't say if you've seen my uh, the shorts on my Vine and Rhyme, the I've been piggybacked onto trains. Okay. Um, it just you know, it we just we were told that all the uh, we did research actually the the trains were supposed to be accessible in switzerland and they weren't so never mind it was uh one of those things so yeah gee that's that's wild um you know in that same video uh gary i saw uh you're wearing your uh cycling jersey and you had the williams racing logo on it and i have to like i'm like a complete f1 nerd now i don't like it just got super popular in the united states i feel like in the last few years during covid maybe but um so yeah is so williams racing one of the sponsors for for you guys at the sia yeah so frank williams who um was the owner and obviously racer originally racer for um for williams um he when, when he crashed his car and he uh he broke his neck um and i think he was something like a c5 six um we call tetraplegics what you would call quadriplegics. We use the Greek term, use the uh, the Latin. Um, so the owner of Williams has always been a supporter of uh, of the Spinal Injuries Association. So they do sponsor certain things. So we get to go and use Williams um, facilities down in Oxford. So whenever we need like a conference hall, we get to go. Um, it's at the museum as well, so we get to like a trip around the museum. So around here somewhere, I've got like Jensen Button's cogs off his car. Um, and but yeah, we've been through Williams. We've just launched the Spinal Injuries Association's Frank Williams Academy. So in partnership with Williams and the SIA, is we've we've launched this. Um, um, it's almost like um, well, it's called the Academy, but it's basically all fact sheets on living with spinal cord injury, and they're all being turned into easily digestible videos. Um, but Williams are a huge, huge supporter. So Claire Williams 
who is uh, obviously the daughter of Frank Williams, is uh, what we call the vice president of the Spinal Injuries Association. So she's one of our biggest supporters. Um, but um, if, you're, if you're a massive Williams fan, this will make you jealous. I was actually in uh, Williams, um, in the paddock at Williams last two weeks ago um, uh -oh. at Silverstone Racetrack, where I was having a, a very fancy meal in the Williams um um, well, I can't think what you call it. Well, I suppose in their paddock because they had um, they have the celebrity sort of Michelin star chef providing those food for us, um, and it was a it was a package that was donated to an SIA um, a, a fundraiser that we were doing, and um, one of the the legal teams that we worked with, a chap called Richard Clark from CFG Law, he he bid on the package and won and invited me as a guest. So All it was right. great to be to go down the pit lane. And uh, I got invited onto the, the new set where they're filming the Brad Pitt film. Oh yeah. Uh, and the pit's down there. And so, yeah, it was amazing. We saw like Lewis Hamilton walking around and we got to see uh, the Williams drivers. It was brilliant. It was such an amazing time. I've not shared those pictures yet, but I will do. Oh yeah. Yeah. You'll definitely have to put those out. That'll be, that'll be, that must've been an incredible time. Yeah. I, I, I watched that race for sure. Um, so yeah, we have to wake up so early over here to, you know, to catch them. I don't watch much of like the pre-race stuff, but I'm um, usually wake up just in time to, to see the race start. So, but yeah, no, that, that's so cool, Gary. Yeah, definitely, man. Show, share those pictures, uh, on, on social media so we can see them. That'd be, that would be great. So I will do. But yeah, well, you know, speaking of which, Gary, why don't you uh, give us your socials before we wrap up here so everybody can can link up with you um, and, and reach out if they have any questions or or want to just chat? No problem at all. Yeah. So um, I'm on Instagram, TikTok and um, on YouTube. And my tagline is oh, my, uh, my thing is uh, got to roll with it. So G-O-T-T-A-R-O-L-L-W-I-T-H-I-T. -L -L -I -I and Depending on which uh, platform, there might be full stops between uh, between the words. Or, um, but if you've got a roll with it, it will come up. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah, give us a follow. When uh, anybody's got any questions, uh, fire them over to us. Um, and also, we obviously the SIA only supports people within the UK. But um, you know, if there's anything that we can help or help with, or if any advice or any information, any questions we can answer, um, no, send them over, and I'll, I'll do whatever I can to uh, to, to 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 help really. Great. Well, I will uh, attach, you know, all of your links and the link to the SIA's website as well to the podcast notes so that people can can check check you guys out. And yeah, Gary Dawson, man, thank you so much. This was really fun. And uh, yeah, I had, I had a great time, you know, catching up and and hearing your story. Oh, this has been brilliant. I've uh, really, really enjoyed it. So thank you so much for uh, for inviting me on. And uh, no, it's um, I appreciate it different different uh, different sides of the pond um so yeah this has been a new experience for me to uh yes to, to these podcasts are fantastic really really appreciate uh, you having me on yeah no no problem gary thank you anytime and yeah if you yeah i'd love to have you on again down the road sometime and and anytime. yeah thank you man it was, it was great no problem anytime uh, take care bye bye All right, that was Gary Dawson. Uh, you know, we, I really want to thank him for his time and, and being willing, so willing to come on and share his story. And yeah, I mean, I just thought it was refreshing, great. I mean, they're all, all, we, all of our interviews are great, I feel like. Well, so, you know, you, you, um, actually, you know, Jeremy, um, I got kind of choked up. I'm a little choked up. You can hear it in my voice right now that, um, you know, that he went to that really dark place, didn't want to be here, and the loss that this world would be, that would have if he didn't, if he succeeded, you right. know? And um, it's just a story that I think a lot of people that go to those dark places should hear because there's always a brighter day, you know? Yeah. No matter, no matter how dark the clouds look, you know, sun doesn't always come out the next day but it eventually comes out you know and yeah. he, and he's put in the work you know he's put in all the work which is fantastic yeah he, he said he talked about um in the in the interview there he talks about uh you know kind of getting a grip on things once he was in the rehab hospital so quick that he was like ready to go home you know and then he, he did go home 
and it was like that's when like the real depression and loneliness set in and yeah. i know yeah i i do know that feeling myself like because you know you think because like when you're in the hospital it's like family's there everybody's there like surrounding you um you know you've got anything you need and then all of a sudden but you just um, experienced that this year right I mean, yeah, that, that was even, yeah, I mean, that was also kind of, I mean, that was very similar for sure. But yeah. um, I think, but with the, with the spinal cord injury, it was like way, you know, I mean, that was like such a life altering moment in time that it's like, you know, yeah, I mean, you're just, you're, you're, you're looking for answers to questions that don't have answers necessarily. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you it's just yeah it's it's a tough it's a tough stretch and i like i you know i always say i think most of us with spinal cord injuries deal with some depression um it's just how you deal with that like what you you know how you move forward from it how you use it in a positive way maybe whatever the case may be so um yeah i thought that really stuck out in my head that you know it's like he was feeling good. He's like surrounded by other folks and dealing with spinal cord injuries. And then all of a sudden he's isolated and isn't around a lot of people. And like, even when I was in the hospital, I remember in rehab, uh, there wasn't any other, definitely no other young spinal cord injury patients. There might've been one or two older folks, but there's a bunch of stroke patients. So I'm doing like all these group things with like old people that had had a stroke that, you know, there's no, there's no like common ground there between our two right, injuries, right. you know what I mean? So I didn't really, and I think like right when I was leaving, I think somebody came, a, a guy came in, but he was like a, a low level para. And I think he had like a head injury as well. So, um, and I would think he was only there for a couple of days before I left. So it wasn't like, we didn't have time to like bond or anything like that. So, um, but you know, but, you know, when and I'm listening to his interview and you, you, a number of your guests have said this, the same thing is that when they get home, it's life altering. It's like you get a slap in the face. They realize, like, shoot, the bathroom, I can't get in the bathroom door. I can't get in the back door. I have too many steps, you know, or, um, if, you know, their caregiver, their parent, their brother, sister, whoever is watching them, helping them leaves for the day. They're trapped, you know, and it's very. um life altering and it's very uh shocking right because you now have to adapt to this new life that you didn't think you were ever going to have to do right. and what one of the things is is that listening to your stories that you have with your guests and as i'm getting older i'm just kind of preparing myself to the day where i may need, need some assistance you know because we're all getting older and i may not be you know a quadriplegic but you never know i mean you know, you could have a fall and end up with uh, some knee injuries where you need some assistance and stuff like that. And what I found really interesting in Gary's story was that the health system in the UK is um, much more. Um, what is it? Uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, Jerry? Much more. Um, like decentralized or. What? Well, no, it's more. It's it's. Um, it's more. It's set up more for um, providing healthcare services to people. It sounds like. like oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, maybe now he said it was getting a little tougher, and he advocates for these folks, which is fantastic, right. and that's what we need to have. And um, you know, it's it's you know they call it socialized medicine, but I don't think it's actually socialized medicine in Europe or in the mm -hmm. UK. But it's much more um, progressive. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. That's that's very yeah. true. Um, you know, and shit. What about the embolism that he ended up having? Oh yeah. God, yeah. Man, I almost forgot about that. Like that was crazy. Like he so from getting hit by the exhaust uh, pipe, I guess, like from the impact of the injury, he you know he's feeling fine. He's I mean he said he was probably pretty doped up on on drugs once he was in the hospital but he's feeling great and laughing and then all of a sudden like just got super sick and wasn't passing urine like nothing was his kidneys were shutting down all the stuff and then they checked and he had this yeah pulmonary embolism uh if, like how insane is that and then like to be able to come through that he said that they thought he was you know told his family he wasn't going to make it um 
So it's like not only do they deal with you know the, the immediate impact of uh, and stress of, of him getting injured, that then it's like oh he's probably not going to make it out of this either. So um, like how yeah, I mean he's a fighter for sure. Yeah, yeah. That's, and uh, you know, and I think a lot of it a lot of it um, going into this is actually his physical condition too. Going into it, you know, he was a gymnast, always worked out. Oh right, um, right. So I think that helps a lot too. Um, no. in the beginning and then you know it's so funny to hear your conversation with him about how you look in the mirror when you're leaving and i know you like to primp but you're a good looking dude <laughs> and i, I was uh, okay. i always kind of teased you about being vain like that but i didn't realize it until you mentioned it that it really is one of the things you have control over right, right? is is how you look and uh, so um if i've teased you too much about it um, I apologize. <laughs> no, no, you're good. You're good, man. Um, yeah, so. it's, just, it's like he meant, you know, it's like body dysmorphia or whatever. Like, you're just like, shit, man. Like, you know, you can't, like, the quad belly is like a real thing, right? Like, you can't, it's tough to, you know, it doesn't matter, like, how little or how much I eat. It seems like the thing doesn't go down at all. So, it's oh, like I know you were, to... yeah, you were in the hospital earlier this year and you lost what, like, 30 pounds or something like that. Yeah. So I guess I could just not eat and just get fed yeah. through a, but, 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 profile, but, but it didn't change your belly. <laughs> no, it didn't. That's the thing. Yeah. Man. I was like, yeah. shit, yeah. just made my face look slender, more slender, <laughs> I guess. But yeah. yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a real struggle, Ricardo. So yeah, you know, it was, I just thought it was a good, good interview. We, we touched on a lot of things. I thought we had a lot in common and, and just were able to touch on some commonalities between, us and yeah i mean great guy great yeah, interview and, i felt like and like i uh, said thank god he wasn't successful so yeah no kidding man <laughs> no kidding uh and so next week ricardo um you know we're gonna have a, a young lady named amanda perla jurassic jurexic those c's and z's when they're together always mess me up so i'm not sure um, exactly how to pronounce her name yet but uh she works i believe she's actually the co-founder of next step orlando so the next step um they're like you know gyms where people can go and work out with spinal cord injuries or any kind of uh paralysis you know whatever that may be from a stroke or or whatever it you know whatever it could be um they they work with these people you know they work with the people that have paralysis it's a great oh, so adaptive equipment then yeah yeah they have adaptive equipment they have uh you know physical therapists that you can work with things like that um and so i i think that her and her mother started the orlando Ch and i always kind of wondered why you know they have these um next steps kind of all over and mostly in pretty big cities like i know there's one in la or orange county or something maybe and like miami and uh, i don't know maybe dallas or something there's there's a few of them around though uh the country and i was always like orlando like how can we not get one in seattle like there's one in freaking orlando and so um she went to one of these i believe and then her mother and her started one in orlando after her injury um, at least that's how the article I read about her is what that said. So I've been getting ready for that interview um, coming up. So I think that'll be a really interesting one. Um, she's a spinal cord injury survivor as well. And uh, just has, you know, is doing a, a great job of kind of uh, advocating for, for folks dealing with paralysis. So that'll oh, awesome. Be, that'll be next week's guest. But I just want to thank Gary Dawson again, like great guy. Uh, you know the SIA seems cool. Oh, that's the one other thing I want to talk about was SIA. I had to, I had to geek out on my F one on my F one stuff because I oh, saw yeah, I, yeah, I mentioned yeah. that uh, in the in in one of his videos he's wearing a a racing jersey for one of the the bike uh, the hand cycle races he does. Um, and yeah, it was uh, he had a Williams Racing uh, logo on it, and so that caught my eye asked him about it i didn't realize that williams right that that uh the uh the father the williams i forget what his name is richard williams maybe no it's not richard williams that's venus and serena's dad uh i forget what his name is anyway the the senior williams he was a f1 driver and he actually got paralyzed and so they started the sia 
because of him, basically. And yeah, Will- Williams yeah. is one of their number one donors. So. And that was and cool. Sponsors. Their sponsors, yeah. And so, and the, the Claire Williams, who was on the uh, F1 show Drive to Survive, and she, uh, I think she may have like left that position with Williams Racing and now is the, the senior director of the SIA or something like that, he said. Um, so that's very, I, I just thought that was so cool, man, that they're uh, kind of hand in hand with, with uh, the F1 team there. Yeah, six degrees of separation, right? <laughs> right, no kidding, no kidding. Yeah. And yeah, Gary was saying that the SIA uses the the Williams Racing kind of uh, headquarters for some of their meetings and stuff, which is very cool. I've, you know, they've shown it on the uh, on that F one Drive to Survive on Netflix a few times, which is is and looks really nice. So that that's cool. They get to kind of interact with the race team from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. But all right, Ricardo, well, uh, you know, another great one in the books. We will be back next week. Everybody, please listen, like, rate, review, and share. The podcast helps us with algorithms. We appreciate you all. And uh, Ricardo, good luck. Fingers crossed you do not come down with COVID, man. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I'll keep you updated, Jared. All right. Well, until next time, guys. 